Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Kokato, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. First Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be covering much of the chapter, though we'll be zooming in specifically on verses 9 and 10 for our That's Not What That Means series. So I grew up in the weird world where evangelicalism meets fundamentalism. Maybe you're familiar with that world a little bit as well. And because I grew up in that world, it's not a surprise that I went to Moody Bible Institute as a college student. Moody Bible Institute kind of had that weird dynamic of not sure if we were evangelical or fundamentalist. We had some carryover rules from the fundamentalist era. So when I went to Moody, we were not allowed to watch movies in our dorm room. We weren't allowed to attend theater. We were not even allowed my freshman year to wear jeans to class. And so it was kind of this strange place, and we had to find things to do since we weren't allowed to watch TV. And so one of the things that we liked to do was to get on the internet and look up other Christian colleges that had rules that we thought were even crazier than the rules at our school. And we found a few schools like that. One of the schools we found was Pensacola Christian College down in Florida. And Pensacola is a hardcore, uh, conservative, I would call it a fundamentalist Bible college. And they had a video back at the time when I was a college student. I think they've scrubbed it from their website in embarrassment. But back when I was a college student, they had just built a new gym. And so this huge sports complex had all kinds of basketball courts and places for kids to hang out. But what caught my eye was in the video promoting this new complex, they showed some students playing racquetball. And I'm a big racquetball player, so I thought, this seems interesting. But what was interesting to me is that they were playing racquetball in dockers and button-down long-sleeve shirts. And I'm like, okay, I, I knew we grew up in a culture that said modest is hottest, but that's not it. And I, it made me start to ask some questions, such as, where did we get these ideas about modesty? Do you remember some of these ideas about modesty? Maybe you dealt with some of these ideas about modesty. You guys remember the fingertip rule? Like, if you're a woman, you need to stretch your arms down and your pants better come down past your fingertips or you would be forced to change. And I always remember thinking as a dude, like, what about the poor girl that just has really long arms? Like, does she have to, like, like, what, what, is she supposed to wear, like, culottes? Or I, I don't know what, what the words are for these long pants, but how does that work out? You know, the modesty verse that often got cited in Christian handbooks, especially for Christian schools, was this verse we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 9. It says, Likewise, I wish also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So this morning I want to ask the question, what exactly does that verse mean? And since we're in our series, that's not what that means. Can I just tell you that our 
culture of legalism, if you grew up in that culture, that said what this verse means is that if you go to summer camp, your, uh, your uh, female daughters must wear one-piece swimsuits. That's not what that means. Paul is getting at something deeper, something richer, and something that flows out of the heart. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the four areas of context that we've been promoting throughout this series. You remember those four areas of context, the historical context, what was happening in the culture around the time when these verses were written. We're going to be super heavy on the historical context this morning. We look at the grammatical culture. What do the words and the phrases in the scripture mean? We look at the near context. What do the surrounding verses and chapters say? And then we look at the canonical context. What does the whole Bible say that helps us to understand this verse in light of everything God says on this topic? Three guiding questions to center us this morning as we dive in. Uh, the first question is, why did Paul write 1 Timothy? The second question is, why does Paul address clothing or modesty? And the third question is, how does the full Bible address clothing or modesty? Now, that actually sounds like an outline, and our outline will flow out of those three questions. And as we look at those questions, I think we'll see that Paul is addressing the heart. Here's our main point this morning. Attire reveals attitude. As historian T.A. McGill, writing about first century culture, writes, in classical antiquity, you were what you wore. Uh, but the modesty point won't make complete sense until we see why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. So let's zoom out to our first question. Why did Paul write 1 Timothy chapter 2? What can we learn from that? And we'll begin with our first outline point this morning. Uh, don't distract from the gospel. As we look at the near context of the chapter, 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to walk us through what was happening and then Paul's general desire and then Paul's specific desire. So let's start with what was happening. Why did Paul write this? And what was happening is the church was getting together to pray. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's look at the first four verses. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the church was getting together, and Paul says, when you get together, you should be praying for other people. That's what we did this morning, isn't it? When we prayed for the persecuted church. It's important that we pray for other people. Do you have a list of people that you're praying for on the regular? Do you have a list of people whose concerns and whose cares you're helping to bear and bring before the Lord? That happens for me on my daily bike ride. So, you know, before it went to like negative 10,000 degrees outside, and that sadly happened really fast, but, but before that happened, I was biking every day. And as I was on my daily bike ride, I would use that time for my prayer time. So as I was uh, biking around, every time I would go up a little hill or a little incline, and that was hard, it would remind me of hard things that people in our church are facing. And we have people here who are walking through cancer and other illnesses. We have people who are walking through some pretty hard relational issues. And I'm telling you, when I'm on my bike going up those hills, I'm praying for you. Often and regularly, do you have people that you're praying for? But Paul then 
singles out some specific people. He's like, as you're praying for everyone, pray specifically for these people. And I'll confess I'm not as good at praying for these people. He says, kings and all who are in high positions. I don't know if you've got President Biden, Governor Walls, and other political leaders on your prayer list, but Paul says it's good to pray for those who are in authority. But in a first century context, they were praying for these people for a very specific reason. He said, I ask that you pray for them that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's hard to live a godly, quiet life if you're being persecuted. And so as we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe, we can pray that those who are in power in those countries will show favor to these Christians and allow them to live out their faith in peace. Just as we're grateful that we can gather this morning and nobody's going to bust down the doors of our sanctuary and haul us off to prison, we should pray that those same rights would be granted to our brothers and sisters across the globe. Because in the first century, that wasn't happening. In the first century, our brothers and sisters were being persecuted. In the first century, the Roman emperor was hauling off Christians, tossing them to be eaten by wild lions in the gladiators arena. He was using Christians as human torches, dipping them in oil and lighting them on fire to light up his nighttime garden parties. This was a horrible, awful thing that these Christians were going through. And Paul says, pray that the people in authority will allow us to live peaceful, quiet, godly lives. So that's what was happening in the situation. But what was Paul's desire? Paul's desire is that by leading dignified lives, we would point people toward the gospel. That's why verse 3 says, this is good, pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who's God our Savior? The one who desires that all people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Dignity draws people toward the gospel. I think we're all pretty much pro-dignity, right? I mean, think about it. Imagine that you were going to have a new couple move in next door. And you got to vote on which couple was going to move in next door. Do you want the quiet, godly, dignified couple moving in next door? Or do you want the crazy, music at 2 a.m., growing meth in their basement couple moving in next door? Like, I think we're all on team dignity, right? And Paul says, dignity is an attractive feature, and dignity draws people toward the faith, because when we live out our faith in a dignified way, it shows the transformation of the gospel in our hearts, and it causes a watching world to say, I need that transformation in my life as well. And so Paul says, pray that you would have opportunity to show a dignified life that would point toward the gospel. That's his general desire. But then he gets into two specific desires, starting in verse 8. And he breaks these down by gender. And so he's going to say, I want the men to do this thing, and I want the women to do that thing. Now, why does Paul break these down into generalizations? It's not because he's a misogynist. It's because these things are generally true. Now, certainly there's some category crossover here, like the thing he says that men deal with, women can deal with too, and the thing he he says women deal with, men can deal with that too. But he's saying, in general, these genders deal with these things more. So as he brings up specific things, he starts with the dudes in verse 8, and he says, I desire that in every place, that phrase in every place is important because it shows that 
all churches, all places, all times. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. So we're doing the same thing that he said that the church should be doing when they get together. He's like, I want the men to pray. How should the men pray? Without anger or quarreling. Men, he said, have a tendency to deal with anger issues. I think that's a fair statement, right? Like, I've never seen a woman put a hole in the wall of her home. But I've seen several dudes do that. And so Paul says, okay, you angry men, we need to get the anger under control. Why? Because a church with anger issues doesn't look good to a watching world. It's undignified. Can I give you an example of this? Are you guys familiar with David Platt? He's a famous author. He's written a book called Radical, another book called Counterculture. He's actually now the senior pastor at McLean Bible Church in Fairfax, Virginia. And there's been some significant drama at his church. I'm not telling you what to think about the issues or what to think about him as a teacher. I'm just simply saying, in light of this drama, I want you to ask yourself, is this dignified? Would this draw people toward the gospel? So there were some people in David Platt's church that decided they didn't like his teaching. And so when it came time for a church election to vote for new elders, they decided that they were going to not affirm the new elders, but they were going to affirm different elders so that they could kind of try and change the direction of the church. Unfortunately, these people who wanted new elders had stopped attending the church, and there was a provision in the church constitution that said if you hadn't attended for two months, you couldn't vote in a church election. So they did what any good church member would do if they wanted to vote against the pastor but weren't allowed to vote against the pastor. They sued the pastor. And so they filed a lawsuit in county court saying we should still be allowed to vote even though the church constitution says we're not allowed to vote because, you ready for this? covid we couldn't attend church because we had COVID. And since the church offered live stream, we should be allowed to consider that our attendance. And then they, find, uh, then they started a church Facebook page called Save McLean Bible Church, where they were telling everyone all their issues with the pastor. And here's what I'm asking you. If you were looking for a church in Virginia, and you had opportunity to attend a church where people were suing the pastor and fighting in court, would you be like, that sounds like the church I want to attend. Like, I just need more drama in my life. Paul's like, we got to deal with the angry dudes that are causing drama in the church because of their anger. And how was their anger being shown? It was being shown when they were praying. So Paul's like, you guys are coming to church and you're fighting in your prayers. Oh, friends, there's no fighting like church fighting. Now imagine this, right? He's saying the men are showing anger in their prayers. So they're lifting up their hands to pray. And I'm just picturing this. Just, can, can you picture this, this scene? Elder Bob gets up and he's like, Dear Lord, I pray for stupid Steve in my church. And he thinks that we should serve Folgers coffee before church. Instead of the rich, dark roast blend that has been ground freshly from beans imported by fair trade from Colombia, which has well served our congregation for decades. Lord, will you forgive his stupidity and his idiocy and restore him to right thinking? Amen. Yo, do you want to attend that church? Paul's like, that's not dignified. And Paul said, 
We want men to be dignified in how they pray. And that kind of sets the scene for his second specific desire because he says the way men pray and conduct themselves can either be attractive to the gospel or detract from the gospel. Then he gets into verse 9 and he says, Now, likewise for the women, let's talk about what you wear. Now, why is he talking to women about what you wear? Here's, here's I think, why. If you have a big event, a wedding, a big party... How many of you ladies are laying out your clothes days in advance and you're ironing them and you're making sure that you know what you're going to put on and you're buying special accessories off the Amazon.com to make sure that you look exactly the way you want to look and then your husband gets up the day of that event, he pulls a shirt out of his closet, he goes, we're good. And there's just a noticeable difference between how men and how women handle the clothing that they're wearing generally. Generally. Now again, there's some category crossover here. There's some dudes who are pretty concerned about the drip that they've got going on. But the concept remains the same. Let's talk about why you wear what you wear and whether or not you're distracting from the gospel. And that leads to our second point. Why is Paul addressing clothing and modesty? Because attire can draw attention toward ourselves instead of God. So I want to look at how this verse is translated in a couple different English versions so that I can point out how the English Standard Version brings out a key word that you might not be familiar with if you've grown up with other versions. The NIV translates this verse, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. The King James Version says, I wish that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And the Christian Standard Bible says, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense. The English Standard Version says this, Likewise, also that women shall adorn themselves in respectable apparel. That's the only translation that uses that word, but it's a really important word. In respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. The word respectable only appears here and in one other verse in the entire Bible. And the other place that that, verse, or that word appears is in the following chapter when Paul's listing out the qualifications for elders. And he says, those who aspire to be elders in the church of God are to be respectable. So the same character quality that's supposed to mark the life of an elder in a local church should mark the clothing choices of the people who attend that church. So you might be asking, was there something happening in the culture in Ephesus because 1 Timothy was written as a letter to Timothy who was a leader of a local church in a city called Ephesus? Was there something happening in Ephesus that was causing people to dress in a way that was not respectable? The answer is yes. Bruce Winter gives us the historical context in a book he wrote about 20 years ago called Roman, Roman Wives, Roman Widows, The Appearance of New Women and Pauline Communities. 
And Winter does all the historical research for us, and he shows that there was a new movement called New Women that was starting in Rome. Rome was the capital city of the empire, and what started in Rome would spread across the empire. So the Big cities like Ephesus was a major city of a major province in Rome would start to imitate that which was happening in the capital, just like in America, right? What happens in LA or Hollywood, within two months, it's being imitated in Minneapolis, and within two years, it's spread out here to Cocado. I'm just saying, it takes a while. We got a lot of corn. Um, but it was spreading across the empire. So what was spreading across the empire? This idea of new women. Here's how Winter defines new women. They were rich, elite women focused on fun in their social life instead of their children and family. Specifically, here's what was going on. These were rich women who had large dowries given to them in marriage, but they realized that there was a Roman law on the books at the time that said, if your husband divorces you as a woman, you get to keep your dowry. That's super important because you can now live the way you want to live and your husband can't divorce you and keep all your money. And what was happening is the men in Rome were already pretty immoral, right? Like on, on a standard of like zero to completely off the charts immoral, Rome was pretty high, right? So the men in Rome were having mistress after mistress and their wives looked around and they said, why do our husbands get to have all these side pieces but we're supposed to behave? That's not fair. We're going to start doing what they're doing. And so these new women decided that they were going to go full-on cougar, and they were going to demonstrate that in how they lived and manifest it in what they wore. So what they wore showed that they belonged to this class of new women. And it was specifically given in the luxury that they wore and the immodest clothing that they wore. So these new women are like, we're rich and we're going to show you, and we're available and we're going to show you. A couple historical examples, actually five historical examples from the first century to show you what was going on. There was a writer named Sallust, and he described a woman who took a guy 10 years younger as her new romantic partner, and he wrote of this woman, and I quote, she was the daughter of one of Rome's noblest families, Yet she made no effort to conceal her behavior. She was no longer just noble, but notorious. Seneca described the clothes of these new women as, quote, the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. The idea was, we're rich and we're ready to party. If you hang with us, you're going to notice us and how rich and how available we are. The riches start to get to some of the things that Paul is pointing out here in this passage. Did you see how he talked about braided hair, gold, and pearls? A historian named Juvenal said, So numerous are the tears and stories of hair piled one upon another on her head. And the issue wasn't that they had French braids. The issue was that they were showing, look at these fancy hairdos we can afford, and they would typically lace their braids with gold and pearls, the two most expensive things in their culture, as a way to say, notice how rich I am. It got pretty satirical when there was a writer named Petronius who wrote a fictional story that was probably circulating around that time of a former slave, now a freed person, named Trimalchio, 
And this freed slave hosted a dinner party for all the rich people in the community. And he wanted to show off how he was now part of the rich community. And so he brought in his wife. And his wife had on these massive golden earrings that were just like weighing down her face. And during the dinner party, he actually called time out from eating, and he brought out a scale, and he weighed his wife's earrings on the scale in front of his dinner guests to be like, hey, look at how much gold we can afford to shove in my wife's face. Here's my favorite. Martial wrote about a noble woman named Gelia and her pearls. Remember a couple weeks ago I said pearls were the most extravagant form of luxury in that ancient world? He wrote about this woman. Agelia does not swear by mystic rites, but by her pearls. These she embraces. These she covers with kisses. These she calls her brothers and sisters. These she loves more than her two children. If the poor thing were to lose her pearls, she says she would not live another hour. Like, we've got a luxury issue. New women would show up at church and say, look at me, my earrings, my hair, my clothes. Notice me. Pick me. And these original notice me girls were showing off with their riches and their promiscuity on the basis of what they were wearing. And Paul said, you're calling attention to yourself instead of the gospel. You're distracting from the gospel. Here's why. Because by covering your riches, you're showing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to anyone, regardless of how much money you bring to the table. And we don't want anyone to think that the doors of the church are barred unless you have a certain amount of money in your bank account. And Paul is saying that when you show off your body, you're saying that you can provide more pleasure than the gospel of Jesus Christ can provide purpose. And Paul says, the goal of our lives is to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And we want to exalt the cross. We want people to see that there is a Savior who came for lost and ruined sinners and gave his body and his blood so that in him our sin can be forgiven. He took our sin to the tree and crushed it so that we can now live godly, dignified lives, which is what verse 10 says. It's proper for women who profess godliness, that word godliness, theosabia in Greek means the knowledge of God and the behavior that grows out of that knowledge. Paul says, what you wear is a reflection of what's happening in your heart. And are you trying to point people to yourselves or to Jesus Christ? So let me give you two wrong applications of this passage and one right application of this passage. Like, how do we take Paul's instructions to a church 2,000 years ago in the ancient city of Ephesus and apply it to what we wear in 2022 America? Here's wrong application number one. Legalism. Legalism says, in order for us to rightly reflect the heart of God, we need to follow these specific rules. That's why we get this code of conduct that tells the women all the things they can't wear and tells the men that they can't wear, like, wife beater tank tops. It's like, 
a hundred things for the women to think about and one thing for guys. It's totally ridiculous. It's totally unfair. And here's why. Because we make it so that God is about the rules instead of about our heart. And God's not interested in us following rules that people make up. That If he wanted us to follow specific rules, he would have listed out the specific rules. He's giving us principles that reflect our heart so that we're caused to ask, why do I wear what I wear and how does this reflect our heart? If a tire reflects attitude, then I have to ask an attitude question, not just a behavior question. But man, as the church, we've gotten this wrong time after time after time. I'll never forget, when I started at my last church, so I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm at a new church about five miles north of here. Within my first month, I get a letter from a dear senior saint who's now with Jesus, but she had the spiritual gift of criticism. And she sends me this letter, and she says, I need to write to you, Pastor, about the young lady who was on worship team on Sunday. Because the jeans she was wearing were only chosen because she wanted the men in the church to gaze at her backside while she was up there worshiping. And I'm like, yo, what in the world? Like, you know what I noticed about her jeans? That they were jeans. That was it. Like, it wasn't something ridiculous. It wasn't something flashy. It was one person who took it upon herself to judge the intentions and the heart of another person on the basis of what they were wearing and then asked us to come up with a rule about how tight the jeans should be allowed to be on the people who are on the worship team. And I'm like, you know what I should do as a 34-year-old pastor? Not that. I should not be like, hey, young ladies in the church, we're going to have a ruler rule about how tight your jeans are allowed to be, and maybe I as a pastor should come. No. Absolutely 0%. No. But that's what happens when we get into legalism. We create weird rules. We create weird uh, 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 standards that we hold other people to. And God's like, I'm not giving you a specific list of rules, I'm giving you a specific criteria with which to evaluate your heart. Are you trying to point to yourself? Or are you trying to point to Jesus? Which leads me to my second wrong application. And I call the second wrong application brother's keeper. Are you familiar with this idea? Maybe you've been to some youth conferences. I was at some youth conferences where we had the men or the boys and the girls go to different rooms and we had a speaker for the men and we had a speaker for the women. I'd always ask the girls, hey, what did your speaker talk about? And they always said, the speaker got up and talked to us about the clothing we were wearing and how we needed to not wear tight clothes, short clothes, or revealing clothes because that would make our brothers in Christ, you guys, stumble into sin. And it's our responsibility to make sure that you don't sin. Can I speak to that for just a moment? Can I speak to the men in the church for just a moment? It is 0% a woman's responsibility to make sure you don't sin. I don't care what she's wearing. I don't care if every woman in your life starts walking around naked until the end of time. It is your responsibility to learn to control your eyes and stop lusting. And just because we have a generation of boys who have grown up as professing Christians but addicted to porn on the side, they can't handle themselves. It's not the responsibility of ladies to go out of their way to fix the problem in the porn-addicted hearts of men. It's the responsibility of men to say, I need to grow to love Jesus Christ more than the endorphin rush that I get from looking at these images. 
And I need to value the gospel more than I value my own pleasure. So this brother's keeper thing is ridiculous theology. It puts the responsibility for sin not on the person who's actually sinning, but on the person who's being objectified. Now in saying that, I want to be very clear that there is still a question for women to ask themselves. Which leads to the right application. The right application is to check the attitude that leads to your apparel choice. We all choose how we live. We choose whether or not we'll respond in anger, and Paul got it on that. And we choose the clothing that we're going to wear. And Paul said, the clothing that you choose gives you opportunity to reflect and ask hard questions in your own heart. And are you wearing the clothes you wear because you want people to notice the styles you can afford? Do you want people to notice how beautiful you are? Or do you want people to notice the riches of grace and the beauty of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ? Don't settle for simple rule-keeping questions. Ask yourself the hard motive questions about why you do what you do. And that leads us to our third question. How does the full Bible address clothing and modesty? And I summarize this as display God, not yourself. Throughout Scripture, those who reject God are pictured as women who flaunt their beauty and their luxury. Hosea chapter 2, verse 13, the nation of Israel is spoken of this way as they're rejecting God for idols. I will punish the nation of Israel, or her, for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Notice that this isn't just an Old Testament thing. All people at all times who reject God are known for flaunting their clothing and their luxury. A Revelation chapter 17 is a description of the nation of Babylon. And Babylon in Revelation isn't a specific place. It's not a specific revived end times kingdom. It's a symbol of all nations at all times who reject God. And here's what it says about all nations at all times. Babylon who rejects God. The woman, Babylon was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Wow, isn't that interesting how that lines up with what we read in 1 Timothy 2. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Those who reject God love to flaunt themselves and point people to themselves. Those who reject God long to be God, to be the object of worship instead of a reflection that points worship back to the God who created us. So how do we display the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel? Two examples, again, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And 1 Peter chapter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you see how Peter picks up on the same theme that Paul 
shared with us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's the gentle, quiet spirit that we're supposed to pray that we'll be able to display by being freed of persecution in 1 Timothy. It's the gentle, quiet, godly spirit in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're supposed to display to point people toward the gospel because the transformed power of the gospel points people to Jesus Christ and allows them to encounter him in a saving and transforming way. And so the question we're left with is this, who are you displaying? Whether by your anger or by your apparel, whether by your attitude or by your attire, who are you displaying? Because when you lift high the name of Jesus, you lift up the gospel. And that is what a watching world desperately needs to see. So I hope that you understand now that you can display through your lifestyle how great your God is, that other people would be drawn to him in faith. God, we're so grateful that you have allowed us, your people, to display your glory, that our radiance need not be the gleaming of our gold, need not be the luxury of our apparel, but Lord, we can display the beauty of Jesus Christ as our transformed heart shines out through us because of your Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Lord, I pray that through our lives, Jesus Christ would be magnified, that people all around the world would join in as worshipers of him who alone deserves our praise, him who alone deserves to be magnified. And so this morning we declare Christ be magnified in me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.